Okay, Happy New Year. It's a lot of things going on. Uh, Happy New Year means it's another year to serve the Lord. So we have things going on. You can look at all the details. I'm not going to call attention to all of them, but there are several. The one right here is for the women's ministry is starting up this Thursday. Okay, so women, this Thursday. On the back, you have a lot of stuff. Uh, Tomorrow night, Monday night, we have three things going on. One is, you heard Rob talk about screw tape letters. We also have BSF men's Bible study tomorrow night. And then uh, we're back on with Revelation tomorrow night. If you're kind of stuck between, well, of course, Revelation, because Ryan and I are teaching it, and everything else, you can always come through the everything else because we're recording ours and it's on the website. Okay, so you don't have to come in person. Um, let's see, coming up two weeks from today, we have uh, January 21st is our local outreach Sunday. Okay, local outreach. You know, our church started in 1912, and uh, back then there weren't any ski resorts. It was just a mining and ranching community, and the wives got together and said, all right, if you want us to raise our kids here, we need a school, we need law and order, and we need a church, and that's how Don Community Church started. Uh, in fact, our first church is the first church building is the right next door, the uh, county museum. That was our first church building. When we outgrew that, we sold it to them for the county for 10 bucks, and we built the A-frame. And we outgrew that, we built this one here. And so all that to say, we've been involved in the community from day one. That's, that's, that's deep part of our DNA is to be engaged in the community. Many, many of the associations and groups that are here working, we work alongside of. Some of them we support, most of them we partner with. And so this is a Sunday when you get to see and meet and uh, see who it is that we actually work with and meet the people, the different organizations and agencies that are here. So that's two weeks from today. Later on in the year, we'll have a global outreach festival. Those are the missionaries like Becca who are serving around the world that we support there. Again, thank you for making it possible. You know, when I... um, when I first found out about this opportunity at the church, they sent me a packet like everybody else. We all got packets. First thing I did was look at the financial statements. Didn't have to look at the doctrinal statement. I already knew that. And um, I knew it'd be fine. So I went to the financial statements to take a look at uh, what your priorities were, where your values lied. I've said for a long time, give me your uh, calendar and your bank statements, and I can tell you what your true priorities are. It's real obvious. All you have to do is look. And so when I was looking at churches, this was one of them, the average giving in the United States in a church now is less than 1%. And so I um, uh, looked, and it was over 20%. So I called Nancy. I said, come here, take a look at this. We've just learned something about this church. I didn't even know any of you. And that has been true my whole time here a value of, of reaching out beyond our own walls for the sake of caring for people, loving for people, loving people, and sharing Christ with people. And so uh, thank you for that. So two weeks from today, you're going to get a chance to hear and meet a lot of the uh, organizations here in the county that we work with that are locally. Okay? So I think that's all the announcements. You can look. There's plenty more, and you can figure this out. Okay. Exodus. That's where we were before Advent. We're going to come back to Exodus now. We covered the first 15 chapters, which is the actual story of the Exodus. Okay? The rest of Exodus kind of lays out the reason why this happened. 
But let's start with a question first. When you think of the word salvation, that's a Christian word. It's embedded in all of our language. It doesn't matter what church you go to, you're going to find it somewhere in the literature and the uh, salvation. What does that mean to you? What do you think of? We have all kinds of technical words that we use to capture. The word salvation is huge. It basically means to be rescued, okay? That's really what it means. But there's all kinds of nuances. If you think of a diamond with the different facets, and as you turn it, you see reflection and refraction both of light in different directions. And so this is that word salvation. It's really massive. It's a very big word. So we came up with words, you know, atonement, forgiveness of sin, all that justification, sanctification, all that righteousness, and all that good stuff. It's all really good. But what do you actually think of when you think of salvation? My guess is a good portion of you think of eternal life, which is good because that's the gift given to us because we trust. That's part of the salvation package. When you look at theologians that that study this, there's a lot of things that happened on the day that you believed in faith. Depending on which scholar you look at, there's somewhere between 30 and 38 things that occurred like that, okay? Uh, one of which is you were given eternal life. Now, when I say eternal life, most of you think of the future. You immediately go to the future, okay? What's going to happen? And that's really not the right place to go to because eternal is just an adjective. The real word is life. That's the real word. Jesus said, I came that you have, that you might have life and have it abundantly right now. Right now. All the, all the adjective eternal does says what started today goes on for eternity. You get to enjoy it. But the real part of it is life, the life that we should experience right now in all of its fullness. Now, you're probably wondering what this has to do with Exodus. You'll find out in a second. It has everything to do with it. Because I want to give you a new word attached to it that very few Christians attach to the concept of salvation, and that is the word freedom. If I were to find one word at the very center of salvation, it would be the word freedom. It wouldn't be eternal life. That's, that's a blessing, a gift that God gave you. But freedom relates to right now, right here. You see, you've heard me use this uh, several times, this picture, that we live in a natural world, but yet when you turn to Christ, if anyone is in Christ, they become part of the new creation. And so the working out of our salvation, our freedom, actually occurs over here. The problem is we don't know how to think about this over here because we live here. So freedom from what? Well, the very first thing we learn is that it's freedom from the tyranny of sin. Sin is a hard, hard taskmaster. And so that's the first thing is that you're freed from sin. That's why Paul can say, you're no longer in this world. You're in this world over here. So why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. Every time we do a baptism, we read Romans 6. You've been freed from the master called sin. So why do you keep sinning? Here's what it looks like. In Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, he uses a lot of technical language, which I love. That's my training. I, I love digging into it. So one of the things that he talks about, one of the metaphors he uses is that you're a slave to sin. And so you, uh, your owner is sin. And it's a horrible taskmaster. Sin is. But sin decides to put you on the auction block and sell you like a slave because you're a slave. So you're on the auction block, and people bid, and Jesus wins the bid, okay? 
He redeems you. That's where that technical word comes from. That comes right out of the slave market, the business world. He redeems you. He purchases you out of the slave market to sin. Okay? So you've changed masters. You've changed from sin to Jesus. And then the most amazing thing happens, and this is what Exodus is all about. He then says, you're free to go. You're no longer a slave. Now I call you a friend. You see the picture? This is the heart of Christianity. When we talk about the gospel, the good news, all that stuff, this is the heart of it. The word evangelical in today's world is a really bad term. I'm on a mission to change it because it's a good biblical term. It's talking about the good news. The good news of what? That you have been set free. You get to choose now what type of person you want to be. You get to decide. You get to look in the mirror every day. Nobody can look in your mirror but you. I can't. I'm not even going to try. That's why Jesus said, do not judge, do not condemn. I don't know your life enough. I don't know the inside of you enough to know what's really going on. That's why God tried to protect us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we're not smart enough to have that knowledge. Plus, we're not omniscient. And now you're set free. You get to look in your own mirror every day and decide what you're going to be. And that's the story of Christianity and it's the story of Exodus. You see, Exodus... The Old Testament, God has a, he has an interesting challenge with us, okay? A very interesting challenge. How would you communicate, okay? You get to play God for a minute, and you get a bunch of people, and uh, you want to communicate to them a world that exists outside of our three dimensions and beyond our five senses. How would you do it? Words don't really capture it. We don't know what it's like not to be immersed in sin. That's our world. We grew up in it. How would you capture that? And so what he did with the scriptures are absolutely brilliant as you study it. He has what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, which is largely about the, the visceral part of life. You can, you can touch the stones of the temple. If you go over to Israel right now, you can hear and smell the animals as they're being executed, sacrificed. You can hear it, you can see it, you can smell it. It's very visceral. It's like a children's picture book. And that becomes a foundation to understand what true spirituality looks like. Okay? An example, we're a spiritual temple. Most of us don't know what temples are. So where do we go? Do we go to a Buddhist temple, a Hindu temple? What kind of temple do we go to? I hope we don't go to any of those temples. They're terrible. We go back into the Old Testament, look at the Jewish temple where the poor could come and have their needs met. So now, true spiritual reality, when the world looks at us as a temple, are we taking care of the poor? That's why I looked at financial statements before I even interviewed to see if they were taking care of the poor. And we are. Okay? This is where all the dancing, the festivals occur, worshiping the Lord. When the world looks at us, do they see a dour face? Do they see judgment? Or do they see us dancing with life? because of the great things that God has done. You see what I mean? So this true spiritual reality is framed in terms of all this stuff in the Old Testament. That's why Exodus is so critical. So the story of the Old Testament is the story of freedom. It is the story of freedom. So let's talk about freedom and why is freedom necessary? You see, freedom is essential. Freedom is absolutely critical. 
We couldn't survive without it. Why? Well, first of all, we're made for it, but that's not actually the real reason. The real reason is because God deemed it to be so. Okay? God made a promise. And God, by definition, cannot break his promise. Because if he did, he would not be God. So he's the one that obligated himself. He's the one that bound himself to his covenant. And this permeates the entire scripture from beginning to end. I'm going to go back and look at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12 is where he meets Abraham, Abram. Abram is out probably worshiping the stars. Joshua tells us that the patriarchs were stargazers. And so uh, he's worshiping the stars. I can't imagine what it would be like to be out in the middle of the night, no lights around, looking at the stars. And one of them says, Abram, that would be terrifying. Okay? And that's what happened. Abram, go. I'm not even going to tell you where. Just go. Abram didn't have to go, but he went. God says, go to a land I will show you when you get there. And he went. And so because of that, the next time God interacts with him, once he gets there, here's what happens in Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, um, Abraham, Abram's talking to the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, because you were faithful, I'm going to give you all this land that you're here. So here's what Abram says. Uh, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have much in the way of faith. All he had been told is go. And then he said, as you go, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. That's Genesis 12. So now Genesis 15, the blessing starts with land. He goes, how do I know this is going to happen? The gods never spoke. He had never heard from a god. And this God spoke. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Okay, I'm not going to go through all that. Here's what happens in the Old Testament, in this part of the world. In our world, when we develop a contract, we write it up, we both sign it. You get a copy, I get a copy. That way, if anything happens, we can go to the court and say, see, we signed this. That's a, that's a marriage con- or a contract, because that's the way they did it. In the ancient world, the way they did it was they took animals, they cut them in half, they kill them, <laughs> cut them in half, and lay the pieces down, and they would walk between the pieces, both of them. And at the end, they would say, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, this is what's going to happen to me. You can basically kill me. Okay? That's how they cut a contract, how they made a contract. And this is what happened right here, is God says, how do you know you're going to get the land? Cut out down the animals, lay them down. Abram knew exactly what he was doing. They're about to execute a contract. But then God stuns Abram. As the sun was setting, verse 12, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your hundred, for, hundred, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. You see, what happens is God walks down, if you read the whole story, between the two because Abram's in a trance. God doesn't let him walk through it. God is the one making the covenant. Okay? He's doing it because of Abram's faithfulness. They will be enslaved and mistreated, verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Okay, why is he going to send them away? Why doesn't he just give the land? Well, be patient. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants, 400 years, will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
There's the reason. Right off the bat, in the middle of this covenant that God is making, he shows us his grace. You see, the Amorites, that's one of the nations that represents the lands of Canaan. And so the people in Canaan had not yet decided that they were going to reject God. So you have Melchizedek, he's a good man. He's a Canaanite. You have Eshcol, who sells land to uh, Moses later on. He's a good land. uh, No, he sells it to Abraham, actually, earlier. He's a good man. And so God is very patient. He takes Abraham and his people out and gives them all a chance. Every human in the world has a chance, okay? Until they finally say, we're not going to serve the Lord. We're not interested in that God. So God brings them back. He brings the Israelites back. So this covenant that was made back then was a covenant to Abraham, and therefore all of Abraham's offspring, okay, which Paul says is every Christian, every person who believes in faith. Basically, I'm going to bless the entire world through you, okay? That's the early covenant that was made. So what is he talking about here? When he says, I'm going to bring this na- your people out of this nation who are slaves, what's he talking about? Freedom. So now, I want you to get used to this idea. When you see the word saved or salvation, I want you to replace it with the word freedom and watch what happens. And why is this essential? Because God made a promise. He made a bunch, but this is just one of them. He made a promise to redeem them from slavery. And that becomes the backbone for the entire New Testament theology of salvation. You have been set free from sin. And this is the promise begins right here. Okay? That's why Paul can say in Galatians 6, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You see, you're created to be free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's why I can ask in Romans, why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. You're free now. Is The reason is because we still live over here. It's hard to understand the world over here. Okay? This place is spectacular, but this is where all of the core questions of humanity get answered. All the questions that get asked. People that have cancer, why me? Okay? I get that question a lot from people in coffee, over coffees. Why me? I've heard pastors my whole life say you shouldn't ask that question. I actually think it's the the question you should ask. Because if you can answer that question, you know exactly what God is doing. Why me? If I've been set free, why? Because what happens in this world over here is where truth lies. And one day we'll experience in its fullest measure. And we'll see why. This is the place when Job over here suffers when he finishes. He says, I repent. God, I'm sorry. I've spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. That's what happens over here. And the reason why you go things, go through things, is because you've been set free, and now you're on a journey. You're on a journey to learn that freedom, and not only to learn it, but to enjoy it. You guys have been, many of you have been Christians a long time. You know what it's like. As life goes on, years go by. If you're faithful, you start to love people more deeply. You start to become more kind and generous, more forgiving. You start giving more. You become more generous with money as well as time. You begin to do that. That's experiencing and learning to enjoy that freedom. So, But freedom by itself, uh, it, it does have 
a response to it. And this is a thing to understand, okay? How did this freedom come about and what, and what is it responding to? It's responding to something. And so because God obligated himself to free us, it is his reputation now and his honor that's at stake. Because if God violates his covenant, just like the animals, that's what happens to him. So when God makes his promise, and this permeates the entire scripture, he's obligated now to follow through. It's no different than you when you have children. You're now obligated to be a parent. Okay? I mean, you could take your kid to the fire station and give them up, I guess. But most people don't, don't think of it that way. When you have a kid, you're now obligated. Right? When our firstborn was son, my wife and I sat there on the floor and looked at him. He's, he's three or four days old, laying on the floor between us. I said, now what do we do? <laughs> a long time ago. And I said, well, I suppose we raise him. She said, what does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> We're going to find out. You become obligated. The moment God commits himself. He's now obligated. So this concept of freedom is a response to what God has done in the way he's obligated himself. Moses reminds him of this. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. You know the basic story. We'll get there. (coughs) And so (coughs) the people make a golden calf. It's really kind of a funny story because God says, you better get down there because your people are sinning. Moses wants to clear the air. He says, just for the record, they're your people, not mine. Okay, And it's a funny interchange of language there. But in the middle of this, he reminds God of his own honor. So Exodus chapter 32, verse uh, 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out? Because if he destroys them, that's what they're going to say. Ha! You thought your God was good. One mistake, and and he destroys you. Why would you want them to say that? to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. (laughs) I just love that. Your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self. See it? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land that I promise them. It'll be their inheritance forever. So what is he reminding God of? You made a promise. That's why Paul can say later on, even though we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He can't. This is the backbone for everything we believe. This should bring you comfort. God has promised to lead you along the way to righteousness. He's promised that. Paul talks about that in uh, Philippians. The one who began a good work, I am confident, will complete it in you. He's never going to leave you alone. Never. Because he promised. And he's bound to his promises. So, freedom is a response to God's own commitment, his own obligation to care for us to take care of us. But freedom also has a purpose. In Exodus 6, now this is, now remember where we are in the story. The Israelites are sitting here listening to all that happened. They came out, and they've only been out of uh, Israel, out of Egypt for about two or three months, and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and so they're hearing now the Genesis Exodus story. In other words, all they know is that God, the 10 plagues, God, he redeemed them and brought them out 
gave them freedom. They're no longer slaves. That's all they know. But now the story, as it unfolds, as they're hearing it, they're now stepping behind a veil and hearing everything that happened. So that's what happened. So they're getting ready to hear, when I read to you Exodus 6, for the first time, the interchange between God and Moses. God, Moses is teaching them about who God is by telling them the story of how they got to where they are. So this is what he says in Exodus uh, chapter 6, um, verse 2. Let me go back. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Every time you see in your English the word Lord with all caps, that's a divine name. That's God's personal name. Okay? The gods never gave anybody their names, but our God did. When you see L with small letters, that's the word Adonai, which is a title. Okay? Sir. So when you see the caps in your Bible, remember you're talking about a personal relationship with this God. So he says, this is what Moses, God says to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. Moses is sitting right on the verge of world history because not, God has never revealed fully who he is until this second in time. And that's what he's doing. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant to give them freedom. To bring them back out of the land, into the land. I remembered it. This is the backbone for all of the New Testament language. I remember my covenant, and I cannot deny myself. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I am the one true living God. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. There's the freedom right there. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh who freed you, brought you out from slavery. Freedom. That's, what, that's the very essence of what salvation is all about. Everything else is how it happened. Forgiveness of sins, death on the ground. That's how it happened. But the very core is you're a human with dignity and he gives you freedom and sets you free and lets you begin to choose. Thus, as we walk with him and begin to learn and enjoy the freedom and not take advantage of it, we begin to grow in our love for him, okay? Um, that's why Jesus reminds us of God's incredible love in John three sixteen. God loved the world so much. Do you all know the verse? That's how much he loved the world. That's how much he loves you and me because of that. So um, we are to share this with others. This is where this purpose comes in. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, we haven't gotten to this yet in Exodus. This is coming in a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. That was the covenant 
that God made with them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 will be there soon. That's the covenant that frames the entire rest of the Bible. And and Peter, he picks up on it. He said, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are a chosen people. What does he mean by chosen? Well, don't get wrapped around all the theological arguments here. Keep it simple. We go out in a park, we're going to play sports. And we pick two people to be captains. And they start picking a team. What do they pick you for? They pick you to play sports. So why did God choose you? Why did he elect you? Why did he pick you? Why? Why did he give you freedom? Why? You are a chosen people. God chose you for a reason. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that, here it is, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You could reframe it. To him who called you out of slavery to sin into freedom. You're free. And you get to tell your friends and neighbors that you're free. You understand freedom. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received freedom, you see I swapped mercy for freedom, but now you have received freedom or mercy. That's the essence of salvation. You get to, you're free now. So Jesus said, I paid for you and then I set you free. No longer do I call you slaves. I now call you friends. And that freedom lives to, leads to love. In Ephesians, the very famous passage, many of you know it about Jesus. Look how it starts. In your relationships with one another. Here's our church. This is describing what we are to be like. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Here he was in heaven. He didn't have to leave. But that wasn't important. You were important. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very servant, the very nature of a servant or slave, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is what we are to be like as a church, to care for one another, to live out this freedom with love and sacrifice. Just before he says this, he says, um, if make my joy complete by having the same love for one another that Jesus had for us. That's what freedom is all about. So when we look at the first 15 chapters of Exodus, it's the historical story of bringing them out of slavery. It is. But it's far more significant than a historical event. It is the historical event that explains all of the rest of the story. That's why the New Testament keeps going back to this. Paul, Peter, they all go back to it. Hebrews goes back to it. It is the historical event that shows us God's love. More than that, it is the historical event that models how we are to love others. You see, the process of conversion, that we think of conversion, leading somebody to Christ, it's not so much about eternal life. That's a gift. The process of leading someone into the presence of God is 
restoring what they were created for.